This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash checkthelocks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we get started, as always, Olivia, it's wonderful to see you. How are you doing? How's your week been? It's good to see you too, John. My week's been pretty good, kind of wrapping it up, but um, nothing too exciting, nothing too sad, nothing too bad. What about you? It's been good. It's busy. I'm on a new schedule, so it's nice to have the weekends off, just kind of adjusting to the new schedule and new hours and stuff like that. But other than that, it's been good. You know, I've been looking forward to this. This is always one of my favorite parts of the week. So as always, I'm happy that we get to be here and record together and share some of these true crime stories because it's really, really fun to talk through them. And I'm glad I get to do it with you. I know it's a highlight of the week. It's like our chill time. You know, it's like you go hang out with your friend. I get to hang out with John. Little virtual hang session. Yeah. One of these days, we're going to have to do some of these in person. So I know. <laughs> it's crazy to believe we've been doing this almost a year and still have not done one of these in person. It's all virtual. I know. I was just telling my mom, I was like, we need to go to Nashville. You know what? Let's just go. We need to go. I was like, I have got to go up there and like visit. Oh, yeah. Bring your mom. It'll be party time for sure. Oh, yeah. Trish, she's a riot. We'll take her to the Let's honky get. tonks. Let her lose her mind. <laughs> oh, man. But what you got this week? Well, this week is my week, and I know from my short on time last week, I talked about a killer couple, and I don't know if it was on purpose or if I just kind of stumbled upon it, maybe it was something subconscious, but I have another couple case this week, so thought it would be fun. I had never heard about it before. It is super interesting, very risque, and so I'm excited to kind of hear what you think as we go through. Cause I know a lot of the time I was like, what the heck is going on here? So really excited for you to hear it. I don't know. Should we just jump on into it? Yeah. I'm interested in this risque part of your story. Well, let's get into it. So this week's case takes place in Vermont in 2012. 33 year old Melissa Jenkins was a beloved teacher at St. Johnsbury Academy. Jenkins taught science and coached girls basketball. And according to a former student, Melissa was always smiling and always bubbly. 
When she wasn't teaching or coaching, she was a part-time waitress who was working towards a master's degree. She was also the mother of a two-year-old boy who was the center of her world. So when she disappeared, the community was in shock. On March 25th, 2012, Melissa Jenkins received a phone call and immediately left her home, but she never returned. Randy Rathburn, Melissa Jenkins' ex-boyfriend, went out to search for her. It was during the search that he stumbled across Jenkins' SUV. It was running and idling on a back road near her St. Johnsbury home, and in the back seat was her son, seemingly unharmed. But there was no sign of Melissa Jenkins anywhere. Rathburn immediately called the police at around 11 p.m. that night, and when they arrived, it was clear to the police that a struggle had occurred. They also believed that Jenkins had been forcefully removed from the vehicle. So I wanted to stop there just for a second before we went any further, because I wanted to kind of pick your brain and see how you would feel if you were in this guy's shoes. So your friend hasn't come back. You haven't been able to get a hold of them. You find their car and their two-year-old is in the back seat, but they're nowhere to be found. I know I would be terrified because it would take hell or high water for me to be separated from my child, just leave them somewhere. So I didn't know what you were thinking or if it was something similar. Well, yeah, I kind of had a question at first because I was wondering if Randy was not only the ex-boyfriend, but the father of her child. It's like like that why he went out searching for her. And we're, we'll talk about it a little bit more as we go through, because what he recalls of the evening is very important. He is not the father. He's just an ex-boyfriend. Okay. okay. Now, additionally, at the scene, a black baseball hat with a red lining around the brim was found. And at this point, the search intensified. Police interviewed Jenkins' ex-boyfriend, and Randy Rathburn told police that he had spoken with her on the night of her disappearance. According to Rathburn, Jenkins had received a phone call at around 9 p.m. that night. Apparently, someone that she knew was having car trouble and she was going to help. Rathburn shared that since she was going out, Jenkins wanted someone to know where she was going and where she would be. I know we've talked about that before. Like if you've gone out someplace, you share your location, something like that. So I got that vibe where it's like, hey, I'm running out. Just want someone to know where I am. And when he wasn't able to get a hold of Jenkins, that's when he decided to go out and look for her. Police needed to know who called Jenkins on the night of her disappearance. They requested her phone records so that they could see exactly who she spoke with on the night of March 25th. Now, at this point, they also had to interview Melissa's two-year-old son. Now, these are delicate situations, so a detective who specialized in child forensic interviews sat down with the toddler. And when they asked the boy what happened, he made gestures to his neck almost like someone's choking. At this point, police feared that something sinister had happened to Melissa Jenkins and a statewide bolo was issued. Detectives also interviewed anyone who may have had contact with Jenkins that day. They even questioned Rathburn, but his alibi checked out. Melissa Jenkins had now been missing for 14 hours. And at this point, detectives were dispatched to search the community and any areas that they may be familiar with. Now, a few local detectives had walked out to check a fishing access point, and it was there that they made a horrifying discovery. There in the water was the body of Melissa Jenkins floating in the Connecticut River. She had tree branches covering her. She was naked, her wrists and ankles had been wrapped in some type of cord, and her body had been wrapped in a large tarp. Concrete center blocks had been placed on her back in an attempt to keep the remains hidden. Jenkins' body was additionally covered in bruises and contusions. There was also signs that she had been strangled to death. Police now knew that Melissa Jenkins had been murdered. And Olivia, I don't know about you, but... As I was going through the story and I think about this woman seemingly being pulled away from her kid and then she's found in a river and it's very obvious that she's been beaten and tied up and stuff like it was just this was heartbreaking to me just going through. So I don't know if you're having any feelings about it as we're as we're going through the story, but this poor kid, this poor family, this poor woman, it's just sad all around. 
Now hearing of the details of how her body looked when it was found and what the kid did to the detectives or the investigator that interviewed him, it makes me feel that like he watched this whole thing happen, which is traumatizing. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And in my head, I was just like, man, I hope it's one of those things where he's so young. He doesn't remember. Yeah, it's not going to be imprinted on him. It's not something that he's going to remember when he's like 15, 16. You know what I mean? So, but you never know because your brain is crazy. You know, you could be in your 30s and just have a flashback to something like that. It's, it's nuts. Right. There was still one large question that loomed. Who would want to hurt Melissa Jenkins? She was an outstanding member of the community and it seemed that she was liked by everyone who knew her. And rightfully so, the community was angry and didn't want to believe that the killer could be one of their own. Now, only a few hours later, police received Melissa Jenkins' phone records. The information that Rathburn shared was quickly verified as he was the last outgoing call from her phone. But shortly before that call, around 8.35 p.m., Jenkins received an incoming call from a number that they did not know. This call only lasted for a little over a minute. Now, police were able to determine that this number actually belonged to a track phone, which is a prepaid cell phone, or as a lot of people call them, you know, burner phones. In their investigation, they also found that it had been purchased about a month prior and no other calls had been made from the device. Police were able to determine that the phone had been purchased in Littleton, New Hampshire, which was only about 20 minutes away from St. Johnsbury. They quickly worked with the store to go through any security footage. And luckily enough, they caught a break. On the surveillance camera, they could see a blonde woman purchasing the phone. And in order to identify the woman, police sent still photos from the footage to the FBI. Meanwhile, police searched the home of Melissa Jenkins looking for any potential clues that they could find. And that's when they discovered a business card on the kitchen counter. The card was for a snowplow company, and the names on the card were Alan and Patricia Prue. Now, Alan Prue was born in 1982, and he spent most of his life in Waterford, Vermont. He was described by his mother as a good boy who never got into trouble. She also called him a, quote, fixer-upper who would help with anything handy. Prue was known for having a deep love for his family, and in fact, when his father got sick, he was the one that was there to care for him. And before his father passed away, he promised him that he would always be there to watch over his mother. In the neighborhood, Prue was known as a type of handyman and jack-of-all-trades. He owned a snowplow business, but he was missing a romantic connection in his life. So in the summer of 2008, Alan Prue decided to give internet dating a try, and it was then that he connected with the woman who would become his future wife, Patricia Lynn Osborne. Now, Patricia was originally from upstate New York, but she was living in Long Island at the time. The two quickly began corresponding over emails and phone calls. Patricia didn't have the warm family relationship that Alan had, and she shared that she had been in an abusive relationship in the past. Alan quickly fell for the girl on the phone, and in October of 2008, he made the roughly six-hour drive to New York to bring Patricia home with him. It was supposed to be a two-week visit, but Patricia never left. And not long after, the pair were married. Now, on their honeymoon, Patricia shared with Alan that she was, in fact, bisexual and attracted to other women. She told Alan that now that they were married, she wanted him to help her explore in the bedroom. And while initially hesitant, Alan agreed. The pair began to post on local hookup sites for someone to join them. But there was one issue. The couple was living at home with Alan's mother and family. So in order to explore Patricia's fantasies, the pair purchased a small camper that they parked in the family's yard. And it was there that the couple would engage in sexual activity with other women. So before we go any further, because remember I told you, you know, there's some risque or titillating aspects of this story. And this is definitely one of them. So where's your head at as we're going through thinking about this couple? 
This is bizarre. They just bought like a little camper to park in front of their family's house and just bringing random women in to have sex with. Yeah. And in some of the research, I watched like a little TV show about it. And the mom was like, yeah, I figured out what was going on, but they weren't doing it in my house. They're essentially just doing it in my yard in this little like pop up camper, you know? Yeah. Which is not okay. And listen, I'm not here to kink shame, right? Do your thing. <laughs> if that's what you're into. Like, there's no shame in that. But I know everybody has certain proclivities. You probably wouldn't want to do those in your mom's front yard. This is right. my only point. Now, additionally, they also had some pretty unhealthy attachment issues as they were rarely apart. In fact, during the winter, Patricia would even ride with Alan while he plowed snow. But Patricia was pretty business savvy. While she was in the truck, she would do the paperwork while Alan plowed. And with her help and over time, the plow business began to grow. And in 2010, they acquired a bunch of new customers, one in particular, Melissa Jenkins. So now that we've talked a little bit about Alan and Patricia, we're going to hop back to 2012 and pick up in the investigation. So police wondered why the business card would be laying out and quickly looked into Alan and Patricia Prue. Detectives compared the pictures of Patricia to the woman caught on the surveillance camera. And it was, in fact, a match. Police now believe that Melissa Jenkins had left her home on the night of the 25th to assist the Prues with their car trouble. And at this point, police began to take a deeper look at the couple. Now, they had no criminal history and they seemed to be fairly normal. And while police started to formulate just how they wanted to approach the couple, they got a surprise. The Prues actually walked right into the police station. And I don't know about you, but if I'm a cop and I'm like, I'm pretty sure they have something to do with it. We got to figure out how we're going to talk to them about it. And then all of a sudden they're like, hey, we're here to file a police report. I'd be like, oh, well, that just fell into my lap. Yeah. And then like, I don't know that I would feel as prepared, you know, no, no time to plan. Well, what's interesting is that the couple had noticed suspicious activity on their credit cards and they wanted to file a report about some potential identity theft. Now, again, the police were stunned that their main suspects were sitting in front of them. So they listened and filed the report. But then they began to ask some questions about Melissa Jenkins. Now, according to the Prues, the relationship was simple. Alan plowed her driveway. The season was wrapping up and Alan said they had spoken to Jenkins about continuing the following year, but she didn't want to continue his services. The couple shared that they were shocked and saddened by someone in their community being murdered. I mean, they just couldn't believe that something like this could happen in their own backyard. But the detectives weren't convinced and they asked the Prues to outline their activities on the day of the 25th. They shared everything that they had done that day, including going to a fast food restaurant and said that they were home and in bed by 7 p.m. Police also asked the couple if they had run into any car problems that night, to which the couple adamantly denied. They also told police that they hadn't made any calls to Melissa Jenkins on the evening of March 25th. But unbeknownst to the Prues, police already knew about the burner phone and the call that was made when the couple was supposedly at home in bed. But... They didn't have enough evidence to hold the couple and they had to release them. However, they decided to keep a close eye on the Prues and a surveillance detail was assigned. Additionally, police needed to verify their alibi. They visited the fast food restaurant that the couple said they had eaten at and asked to review the security footage. Then another shock. There, on camera in the drive through window, was Alan Prue. He was wearing the same black baseball cap with red lining found near Melissa's vehicle. Now, with this new evidence in hand, police were able to get a court order for Alan Prue's DNA, and it was, in fact, a match to the DNA found on the hat. Now, at this point, detectives took a slightly sneaky approach. The Prue's had an open case against a Vermont state trooper, so they used this case as a ruse to get the couple into the station. 
Once they arrived, they were immediately split up and they were interviewed separately. While talking about the trooper-involved case that Allen thought he was there for, he was friendly and calm. But when the question shifted to Melissa Jenkins, his energy shifted as well. And when Allen was told that he was being looked at for the murder of Melissa Jenkins, he became agitated and asked exactly what the detectives knew. And when Prue demanded proof, the police were more than happy to oblige. Allen was shown the drive through footage, the hat found at the scene, and other evidence. And at that point, Allen Prue knew he was caught. He then began to tell detectives about the events that took place the night Melissa Jenkins went missing. According to Allen, what happened to Melissa was an accident, and it all tied back to the exploration he and Patricia enjoyed in the bedroom. And this is where I think things get a little dark. While the couple had started by opening their bed to other women, somewhere down the road, things took a dark twist. Allen shared that the couple began to desire a, quote, sexual plaything, a woman that they could have and use like an object, not a human. Allen told police that the night Melissa Jenkins went missing that they had, quote, gone out to get a girl. He shared that their original intention was to kidnap a woman to bring home. And when they originally discussed their plan, the couple both thought of Melissa. Allen shared that both he and Patricia had been sexually attracted to the teacher for some time. And on the night of the 25th, the couple entered their vehicle and took off down the road. So before we go any further, I mean, we've gone from sexual exploration, which again, not kink shaming, anything of that nature, but this is definitely something darker. And so I just wanted to kind of pick your brain. What are your thoughts? Where are you at? Kidnapping is a lot darker. Like the fact that they're going to start doing stuff and treating a human, not like a, a person at all, but an object is terrifying. And I don't even want to know that if we find out exactly what they did to Melissa or not. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like if you are into that kind of thing and you give consent to where you're like, I want to be used like a thing and not a person, like yes, you're consenting no to that, shame. like, yeah. you know, do your thing. But it's the idea of like, we're just going to take somebody. And that's where I'm like, this is, yeah. it's just, it gets so dark so quick. Now, once they took off, they parked down the road from Melissa Jenkins home and they made the call. Patricia told Jenkins that their car had broken down and asked if she would come help knowing that she would. When she arrived, Alan exited the vehicle, and when Melissa approached, he began to strangle her. But Melissa was tough, and she fought back, and the trio engaged in a pretty violent struggle. And it was then that the couple realized that Jenkins' son was in the backseat of the car. Alan continued to strangle Melissa until she was unconscious, and then they put her in the back of the vehicle, leaving the child alone in his mother's car. And as they drove down the road, Patricia continued to strangle the woman. Melissa Jenkins lost her life in the backseat of the couple's vehicle. They then took her body to their home and stripped her naked. Alan and Patricia Prue laid the body of Melissa Jenkins on a large plastic tarp and poured bleach all over her body. They then loaded her back into the vehicle and drove to the river. The couple then collected the tarp, the victim's clothing, and other evidence and burned it in an isolated area in New Hampshire. Alan also drove with detectives to various scenes and helped them to recover the burner phone that the couple had thrown into the river. And I guess a technical analyst was actually able to dry the phone out and verify that that was the phone that had made the calls pull information off of it. They found it from the river? Mm -hmm. He took them out there and was like, this is where we threw it. And they went out and found it. That's crazy. Now, as crazy and as dark of a story this is, police still weren't sure if Alan was telling the truth because they're only getting one side of the story. Was it true that the couple was equally responsible? So police then spoke to Patricia, who immediately denied being involved. Now, at this point, both Allen and Patricia Prue were both charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Allen's trial began in October of 2014, and his defense attorney surprised everyone with their approach. 
According to the defense team, Patricia Prue alone was responsible for the murder of Melissa Jenkins. They claim that Allen was attracted to Jenkins and this did not sit well with his wife. And in a jealous rage, Patricia murdered the St. Johnsbury teacher. But the defense was no match for the tape confession that the prosecution presented. And on October 22nd, 2014, Alan Prue was found guilty of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and kidnapping with the intent to commit sexual assault. He was sentenced to 50 years to life for the murder charge, life for the kidnapping charge, and five years for the conspiracy charge. Now, Patricia Prue's trial was set to begin shortly after, and the prosecution had some pretty damning evidence, including a laptop computer. Analysts were able to determine that Patricia had searched how to kidnap a girl and not get caught. But shortly before her trial, her defense team approached the prosecution and asked for a possible deal. Patricia claimed that she had dissociative personality disorder and planned to enter an insanity plea. She eventually pled guilty to murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit murder. And like Prue, she was sentenced to life for both the murder and kidnapping, and she was sentenced to four to five years for the conspiracy charge. Now, later, Alan Prue would attempt to appeal his conviction, again saying that his wife had acted alone. But in September of 2016, the Vermont State Supreme Court upheld the conviction. Since her arrest and conviction, Patricia Prue has since filed for divorce from Alan. And to the best of my knowledge, Melissa Jenkins' two-year-old son was placed in the care of his birth father. That's this week's story. Like I said, it is a little scandalous. There's a really dark kind of sexual element and... I'm really interested to hear what you think of the case overall. So where are you at now that we've gone through the whole thing? This case was a doozy. I initially was very confused as if the teacher, Melissa, was going to be involved in this weird threesome thing that the Prus were going to have going on. I'm glad to know that she was just like a friend, but I did not expect them just to turn so dark. Like it's one thing to do what they want to do in the bedroom, but like it's another thing to take it to the next point of like killing someone while their child's in the car. And like after hearing Alan's confession, the kid definitely like saw the whole thing. I'm kind of really disgusted by it. This case was kind of hard to listen to. Once I like heard that she was killed in the backseat of the car and then they took her into the house, poured her body over with bleach. Like it was just, it was a lot. This one was not settling well. Yeah, it definitely hit hard when I was doing the research. And again, I know I talk about this all the time, but as a parent, like you're just thinking about that kid being in the backseat, you know, and even if he doesn't remember, there's so many articles and stories that outlined what happened. And as an adult, he will have this constant reminder that like, oh yeah, this thing happened to me. You know what I mean? Right. And hopefully nobody ever lets the memory of Melissa die, but hopefully that's something that isn't in his face as he grows up. You know what I mean? Like yeah. trying to think of the best way to say it, but you know, I just don't want it to be something that he's confronted with time after time. Like, Hey, aren't you the kid who, you know what I mean? Cause that yeah. stuff happens and it's really sad. Like Melissa was going out to do something kind for these people. She thought were her friends. She was going to help them with their car troubles. And then next thing you know, she's getting strangled to death. Now I do want to ask you this with knowing what was on her computer Do you think she was the ringleader? Do you think it was a joint effort? Where do you fall there? 
I do. I think Patricia is the ringleader. I think going into the marriage initially with Alan, she was the one that said, you know, listen, I'm bisexual. These are the things that I want to do. I want to try this out with you. I think she also very much persuaded him along the way with every little thing. So I definitely think she was the mastermind behind it. So I'm glad that she, even though she didn't confess initially that she is getting a life sentence because she's 100% just as guilty. She may not have done the strangling or anything, but she's guilty. Yeah, for me, as we were going through, it seemed like she was the one who was kind of escalating the behavior. Mm-hmm. I can't say all of it, you know what I mean? But like, hey, I'm coming to stay with you for two weeks. I'm not leaving. We're getting married. Hey, now we're married. I'm really interested in bringing somebody else in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Hey, I don't want you to go plow by yourself. So I'm going to come with you and sit in the truck. Hey, this isn't your snowplow business. This is our snowplow. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I, I hate to say this, but in my research and the reading and then um, in the killer couples that I watched just to kind of get context, mm-hmm. Alan seems like he was kind of simple, like he came from kind of a simple family. Like she almost took advantage of him in a way. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's 100 percent what happened. I'm just saying right. going through the case, that was the perception that I have. I may be 100 percent wrong, but it's it's just crazy to think that someone could think about another human being that way. And I think, you know, we've talked about this before and a lot of the cases that we cover, but it's like these killers that we talk about, they don't see people as people, you know? Right. And it's just, it's hard. It's hard to try to put yourself in those shoes or like see through that lens. Cause you know, we have feelings and emotions and we're not, you know, sociopath. You know what I mean? So, right. Right. But if we were talking deadbolt test and I'm interested in this, where do you think you land on the deadbolt test for this? I'm gonna go with the 10. Go with the 10. Yeah, like she went out to go help these people and they murdered her in front of her child, people she thought she could trust. This is random in a sense that like she had no idea that they did this behavior, nor did they probably think they were going to actually do this behavior. But she just thought she was going to help friends and they killed her. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, listen, I'm incredibly attractive. I don't know who is secretly yearning after me or have these, you know what I mean? So it's dangerous for a guy like me out there. <laughs> you know you better I mean? watch all those people at Jersey Mike's. I know all the Jersey Mike's guys are like, well, here comes that hottie. Coming <laughs> in this. No, no, sorry. And I make a I joke because like, that's how I have to process this because it is crazy. But you know, just to think that you never know what somebody's thinking. You know what I mean? Like I'm friendly with my lawn guy. If my lawn guy was like, Hey man, I got a flat tire down the road. Like I'm real close to your house. Would you help me out? I'm like, yeah, sure. Terrell, I'd be happy to help you. Next thing you know, he's choking you out and you're dead in the backseat of his truck. Like that's right. awful. I don't know. It's just crazy how random it is and how you could be walking through life totally unsuspecting that there is somebody out there plotting to do something terrible to you. That's the scary part for me. It's the randomness because she wasn't like, oh, these people are probably trying to get me or she was right. just like, it's a guy who shovels my snow. In your research, did they ever talk about anything about possibly being premeditated? So the premeditated aspect was the kidnapping with intent to commit sexual uh-huh. assault. Okay. Because they did say like. We were planning. You know, this person is going to come back and be our sex slave, essentially. Right, right, right. Okay. But according to Alan, the murder just kind of happened. Okay. That's hard for me to believe because he's saying like, yeah, she walked up to the car. I just started strangling her. You know what I mean? So so it's like, I don't know. And then the other thing that I read during the research is somewhere between the time that they met Melissa Jenkins and then the murder happened, they had been trying to conceive and have a kid and they've been to fertility clinics and it just like wasn't in the cards for them or it was going to be very hard. 
So I don't know if maybe that could have been the stressor or something to kind of, you know, well, if I can't have a kid, if I can't, you know, have like a traditional family, then like I'm going to lean really hard into this dark side of me that I have, you know what I mean? So I don't know. It's just, you don't know, you know? Yeah. That was, we haven't had a case like this. I feel like in a while where it's just very twisted. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty heavy stuff. And I think this would be a great time for a palate cleanser. I am putting this at a 10. You are putting this at a 10. But as always, we want to know where does a deadly attraction fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. If you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? Come hang out with us. We would absolutely love to get to spend some time with you. This group is amazing. You know, Olivia, you and I were talking before we started recording, but when we started this podcast, like we didn't even know if our friends and family were going to listen. Oh yeah. And so to know that there are people all over the world that are like, Hey, let me like come and hang out with you is insane. So, so if that is you, thank you. Whether you're from the United States or Australia or Japan, wherever you're listening, thank you for letting us be part of your life and hanging out with us in the Facebook group. And if you're not in the Facebook group, come hang out with us because we would absolutely love to get to spend some time with you. I need a five-star review because like I said, this one was really dark and I have to be honest, I don't think I had the time to actually process what I was going to be talking about because we started recording at nine o'clock and I finished my research at 8.50. So right. I think it's all just kind of hidden. So I need something to kind of clear out my brain. So you got a five-star review for us? I do. This week's five-star review comes from Case Stinney. They said, I found this podcast when they first started as I was looking for another true crime podcast to add to my rotation. Since episode one, I was hooked. Their personalities and banter are awesome. The way both of them tell the stories keeps my attention. I also love the deadbolt check at the end. Definitely recommend this to all my other true crime friends. Keep it up, guys. So thanks, K-Stenny. And it's K-S-T-I-N-I, just for clarification. K-Stenny, K-Steiny, however you want to say it. Thank you for taking the time to leave us that five-star review. I know we talk about it a lot, but we live busy lives, right? We're working 40 hours a week. We got kids to take care of. We got family members to take care of. We got grocery shopping to do. There's just a million things to do. So the fact that you took a couple of minutes out of your day to say some kind words, it really does mean a lot to us. So we would love to send you some stickers, some buttons, some pins. We'd love to send you some goodies. We actually just got coasters today. So if you want to support, check the locks and not get any rings on your wood furniture, that's a great way to do it and they are really cute i know i showed you olivia do you see the little skull in the o they're, it's very cute oh yeah they're really cute they look like the keychains the keychains are like that or the murder court logo yeah so yeah yeah and we got cute new mailers we do and they're very big so yeah. if you get something in these mailers i'm sorry that they are so big and what's inside <laughs> is so small i didn't know when i ordered them they were going to be gigantic but so frame it save it keep it forever <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely a cool thing. I'll put the address on the back and you can yeah save it. Use it like a poster or something. That'd be pretty cool. But thank you so much. Reach out to us. Let us know that it's you. Again, you can find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. If you're in our Facebook group, you can reach out. Let us know there. We would love to send you some stuff. And Olivia, if somebody would like to have their five-star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? They need to hop on over to the Apple Podcast app, go to our show's homepage, scroll down where you see all five stars, click all five stars, and leave us a little review. It doesn't have to be anything long, just something sweet and simple and to the point. That's right. 
Olivia always says it the best. She always says it with the gusto. Head over to Apple to podcast. <laughs> Head over to Apple to podcast. I just said that very Italian. <laughs> Head over to Apple podcast. Click those five stars. Leave us a review. Again, I know we talk about this every week, but these reviews really help us out. They help us get into other show suggestions. They help us to grow our audience and to bring more people in the family. So if you've left us a review, thank you so much for doing that. And if not, you can go into the notes for this show under the description. There is a link. Leave us that review. We would love to hear from you. And if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, helping us keep the lights on, that does mean the world to us. And you can do so by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. We have a lot of great tiers. We have stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, all sorts of stuff that you can only get for being a patron. So if you like what we do, you want to help financially support us, you know, we could always use better microphones. We could always use, you know, a researcher. We <laughs> There's so much stuff that we could use. So if you want to help us out, you definitely can. And listen, if you can't financially support the show, that definitely makes sense. We completely get it. Just listening, hanging out with us every week means just as much, if not more. So please, if you like what we do, you're enjoying the show, share it with your friends and family, send them a link, let them know to listen, because again, it's all about growing this audience audience, growing our family, getting in front of as many people. So thank you so much. If you do share it, if you do come and hang out with us, we appreciate you more than you know. That is all that we have for this week's episode. Please make sure that you are subscribed to check the locks on your favorite podcast app. So you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week. Bye.